News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Such an interesting morning at Vancouver City Council. I know a lot of people are going to be following along, including our Raji Sohal joins us now. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this story has uh, got everyone buzzing, I sure think. Does. The city hasn't managed its money well. And, you know, in the past, I've been told by some councillors, some Vancouver City councillors, that our city has depended on the global wealthy to move property around. And that this, what's happening now with parking, is a quick cash grab. It's basically using residents as an ATM. Yeah, and I agree with that. You know, they say it's going to earn between something like 44 to 72 millions in the 72 million. Yeah. In the first four years, I want to hear about innovative um, and non-traditional solutions to help curb climate change. There are plenty of them. I, I don't buy that this tax is going to solve Vancouver's contribution to climate change. It's not going to happen. It hasn't been laid out. There's not much of a plan there. They're just saying, hey, this is how we're going to gouge you. And we'll figure out what (laughs) we'll do with it afterwards. That is so true. And I think part of the part of the problem is as well, people don't have a lot of faith in this particular council because Mm -hmm. this particular council has seemingly, as you put it, run to the public for as an ATM every single time, adding a levy here or, you know, an extra tax for this here. And we we don't know where the money goes. Like how many years ago was it now that we were that a levy put on our property taxes? It was an extra 0.5 percent, I think, to fight the opioid crisis. Where where does that money go? What do they do with it every year? We don't ever hear about we're going to take money from this area and put it over here. They just say, we're just going to get more money to do this. And and with this parking issue too, and we're asking people this morning, you know, how they feel about it, no matter where you live, because if Vancouver gets away with this, you can bet that other, you know, municipalities would try something similar. And I have to read you this email, Raji, that I got from Nancy, and she makes such a good point. Nancy says, I live on 8th Avenue between Trutch and Balaclava with designated residents-only parking, she said. Every day, shoppers along West Broadway illegally park in our spots. And she said, if they're now going to charge us to park there, please explain how you will police ensuring that we have available spots 24-7 that they want us to pay for. Uh-huh. Well, they won't, right? Exactly. But then, <laughs> now they're going to have to pay. Messy. Now they're going to have to pay even though they still can't get parking in front of their house because the shoppers are always taking their spots. Yeah, I think that it's going to be so impossible to monitor this and to chase people with the fines. You know, for people who can afford it, uh, who can afford this extra tax, they're not about to clear their garage to make room for the car. They're not so that they can clear extra street space. They're going to pay it. So it's not going to actually clear up more space. And I just also feel like why look at individuals to solve something for which a systemic change could make a greater, possibly huge impact, like in building design, right? Building design in Vancouver is well known for being super inefficient. And yet we continue. We have glass towers, housing offices and condos that are, you know, 45 degrees, 50 degrees internally during the heat wave and require major air conditioning all summer long and a pollution charge, they're calling it. But 
okay, fine, don't stop there. I want to charge people uh, whose lavish yards require so much more water. Oh, to don't maintain. get me started or, on the people Cindy, constantly watering. And they, Raji, I have so ranted about this things. on the show. I have ranted about this on the show. Remember that drought that we had about five years ago, like the really bad drought that we had? Yeah. And boy, it turned neighbor against neighbor in some mm-hmm. neighborhoods because in, in, my, in my neighborhood in particular, there was one person and everybody on the street still remembers this one person who was watering their lawn secretly in the middle of the night. Oh my during, God, shameful. A, yeah, during a <laughs> harsh drought and got essentially got busted for it because, you know, somebody was walking their dog in the middle of the night because it was so hot out, walking in the middle of the night, went out, got up. And saw this person doing it. And then I thought, you know what? Makes perfect sense because that person's lawn had stayed relatively green. So if we can't even police that kind of stuff, how how are we going to do this? Well, the, I don't. I just don't buy the pollution charge bit about this. You know, we also get uh, developers who you know are loaded and who have an addiction to pouring new concrete, which is awful for our environment. I would just what I don't like about this parking measure is that it's arbitrary and it's kind of haphazard. I want them. I want the city to stop gouging the people who aren't the problem and target the heavy climate change culprits and make them pay. Uh, do you remember we had uh, Mayor Stewart on a few months ago to talk about this when the parking measure had just the yes. issue just uh, arose? And I really didn't like, this stuck with me. He said, let's not be dramatic when you challenged him on how this was going to gouge the wrong right. people, the wrong people would be targeted. And just the level of elitism in that comment was not lost on me. This will hurt some people more than they can handle. You know, somebody who needs to have a truck or a bigger vehicle for the job that they do has to buy that vehicle regardless. But somebody who has a luxurious gas guzzling vehicle in another neighborhood, they don't care, but they're going to be paying the same price up to $1,000 for this. And it's just ridiculous to me that the city would be doing this. Yeah. And that person that you're mentioning, the individual who has to drive a truck for work, they cannot bring their tools in a fancy little electric vehicle. The pickup truck is a requirement for their work. Exactly. There's nothing else available right now for them to use. So I do, the inequity of this really gets to me. And it's interesting, Raji, because a guest that we have a little bit later on the show is a doctor, Vancouver physician, who is arguing for this. She wrote an editorial in the province newspaper and she said, well, and, and when asked with the inequity question, she said, well, nothing is perfect. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah. Oh, really? Because like, this city council is so far from perfect. They can do a lot more before turning to us once again. And also, this is just the start, Simi. This uh, initial fee will go up and we know it's not going away once it gets in. So I am very curious to see if it passes. Do you think it will? I would have said initially no, but following all the comment sections on articles about it in the last week, I would say there's a very good chance it passes. Do you think so? See, I'm starting to think it's not going to. Initially, I thought it was because we had spoken to so many councillors and the mayor, and they all seemed to think it was a good idea. But in the last couple of days, clearly they're getting an indication from the public that you know, the public is not happy about this. So in an election year, you're telling me, like, because next year is an election year and this would take effect next year, you're going to put this in place? I would say if that's the case, every Vancouver resident should know exactly who voted for this. 
Yeah. How many people did you say actually wrote in? 20,000. That's the most on an online survey. And I also took that survey. And they've never had, they said, a reaction like that to an online survey that they have asked the public about. Um, And I also very specifically remember talking to Adrienne Carr about this. And she's she's always of the, well, I'm going to wait and see what happens variety. So I'm really curious to see what her vote's going to be like. Yeah, I think she said she wanted to hear all sides of the story before she made her own decision. But I've never heard people more riled up uh, in Vancouver on an issue. I know more people who wrote in on this than anything else. So we'll see. But I just, you know, I am all for curbing climate change, obviously. I just think we need to be more fair about it. And let's go after the heavy hitters and not make individuals suffer. There are people for whom, if this passes, they will be making some uh, major decisions for their lives. I talked to a couple who told me they're going to have to get rid of one car. And, you know, to that point, someone might say, oh, good. Well, that's that's kind of the whole point of this kind of thing, you know, discouraging people from driving. But if they do that, then it means that they can't take one of their kids to, you know, all the soccer practices and whatnot that he goes to. And uh, they would have to drop some other things, but that they would just have to do that to start cutting corners. And I thought that's really sad. It's sad. Also, if this is what you're going to do, to me, it's also about enforcement, right? Mm. Like Nancy pointed out, what are you going to do then to make sure people are getting the value of what they're paying for? Because otherwise, you're just going to breed more resentment in this situation. Mm-hmm. We also had a call to our buzz line about this. Have a listen. Yeah, I'm just calling in about the... Uh Permit parking in Vancouver. I think it's, uh, I think it's way over the top. Us people that live in the lower mainland, we pay enough. If you look at what comes off our checks for taxes and everything we pay tax on and all our bills and I think it's just another money grab. It's not a good thing. It's gonna deter people from buying in Vancouver. The people are gonna start selling and moving away like they already are now. Moving out to the suburbs. Well, we'll see what happens with that. So, Raji, your prediction is that it's going to pass. I'm afraid it might, Simi. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna. I'll say I don't think it's going to, but it's going to be close regardless. So, I'm sure we'll be talking about it tomorrow. Oh, for sure. Yes, we will. Thanks for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. This is mornings with Simi. Oh, lots of eyes and ears on what's going on at Vancouver City Hall today, where Council will be continuing to hear speakers this morning on their climate emergency parking program. This is the one that proposes an overnight permit for vehicles in all residential streets. Plus, every you know owner of a vehicle will have to buy a residential parking permit, no matter where you are in the city. And the proposed pollution charge, meaning if you buy a gas-powered vehicle 2023 or later, you could be hit with an extra fee of anywhere from $500 to $1,000. It is controversial. It is certainly generating a lot of discussion. More than 20, about 20,000 people, I should say, responded to the City of Vancouver's online survey for this. And it could go either way at this point. Some councillors have said they support it. Others have said that they don't. How does the mayor feel about it? Well, there is a statement out from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart's office, and he says, The mayor is concerned about how the proposed fees would impact tradespeople and middle to low income residents who would not be able to avoid the new parking charges. He says climate change is already having a disproportionately negative impact on middle and low income families. and We have to ensure all our solutions reflect this reality. So how will he vote? Well, we have to wait to find out about that. Right now, though, let's talk to Dr. Melissa Lem. 
Dr. Lem is a Vancouver family physician, president-elect of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, and a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. And she's written an op-ed published by the province newspaper this week that said, you know, given what we've gone through this past summer with wildfires and the heat dome, that should be more than enough for us to consider having this program. Dr. Lem, thanks for joining us. Hello? Well, we're going to have to get a hold of Dr. Lem. Bit of a problem with the telephone there, but we'll have Dr. Lem with us shortly. Let's get to Dr. Lem. Hi there. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Thank okay. you so much for your patience on that one. Thanks, Jimmy. You're now, welcome. Dr. Lem, why did you take the step of writing this editorial for the province? It's because climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century, according to the World Health Organization, and they've been saying this for over a decade now. And it's really important that we take the steps right now to reduce our carbon emissions. Otherwise, we're in for way more than just the heat dome we saw, way more than just the smoke that we've seen year after year over the past summers that is that are already affecting people's health. But is this the way to do it? Is this the way to make people take climate change seriously? Or is it not just going to make them resent these measures? I think the first thing we need to do is explain exactly what the climate emergency parking program is, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there. You did a pretty good job at explaining. Um, But yesterday we heard from city staff, they went over a proposal for two major things. So the first is that $45 per year parking permit fee for everyone who currently stores their car on city-owned space across Vancouver, which we're all paying for, even if we don't own cars. And this makes sure that everyone, not just the 10% of people who already pay, pays their fair share for parking. And that second one, which you mentioned, which is probably the part that's getting the most attention, is a pollution surcharge of up to $1,000 per year for brand new gas guzzlers. So we're talking 2023 models or newer that are, for example, luxury cars and big SUVs. And and just back to the $45 per year parking permit fee, I think the city has equity in mind because it's reducing that fee to just $5 a year for people who are in low-income households. And so the vast majority of people in this city, when the program starts in 2022, will be paying less than $4 a month. And so if you can afford to buy a brand new vehicle and choose to pollute more, you're going to be paying more. And so parking, it seems like a trivial thing, but about 40% of our carbon pollution in Vancouver comes from these cars that burn fossil fuels. So there's no way we can cut our emissions in half by 2030 without changing the way we move. And burning these fossil fuels drives climate change which you mentioned caused the deadly heat dome this summer and wildfire smoke, and also that air pollution hurts our health in many other ways. Right. And, and I, for a lot of people, though, this is about, you know, Vancouver City Hall and the relationship that they have with residents. People feel like they're constantly being asked to do things that City Hall itself is not doing. How do you respond to people who think, listen, this is a cash grab from us? I think we have to work within the parameters we have. So, to date, no one who's, who's advanced these criticisms about what City Hall is, or city staff is proposing have come up with a credible plan for doing otherwise. So, for example, some councillors have said, well, let's get more money from the province. It's like, well, where's that money going to come from? Let's invest in a bold vision for, for public transportation. Well, how are we going to fund this vision if we don't have more money? So basically what it comes down to this is if we don't pay now, if we don't pay $4 a month now, we're going to pay billions more dollars later. So again, if you're going to come up with criticism, you have to come up with a credible plan for how we're going to get money now because it's an emergency now and we have to take action now. Right. See, I think people feel like the city of Vancouver has that money though, but they never look inward. 
Yeah, I I don't know that they do. I mean, again, the sixty million dollars that is going to be raised from this plan—it's sixty million dollars. That's that's not insignificant. It's it's going to cover twenty five percent of the climate emergency action plan, and we're not going to be able to fund climate action without it. And I think it really makes sense because I believe the city did some surveys of residents, and they asked, "Okay, how do you want to fund this plan?" And they said, "How about a property tax increase? How about across the board increases?" And people said, "No, we want to make the people who are." Are actually polluting um, and actually driving these cars pay pay for the rest of us. Right. So I think I think it is fair. Do you have a car, Doctor Lem? I do not own a car, so this won't affect you. Well, it actually will affect me because I I don't own a, a car every day, but there is actually this overnight parking um, fee, a, like a daily fee for vehicles if you park. For example, not every day in the month, but some days. And so I do rent vehicles sometimes to do my work around the province. And so, you know, it's a $3 fee. So if you think about it, for monthly parking, you'll be paying a base rate of less than $4 a month. So I'll probably be paying just about the same as everyone else for, you know, for the, the, you know, the odd rental right. that I use for my work. You wrote that you believe that these measures prioritize equity. How, how do you see that, though? Because, the, you know, there's middle-income earners who have to have a work vehicle or a truck for their job, and they're going to pay the same as someone who buys a luxury gas vehicle and doesn't care about the pollution charge. Yeah, so I don't believe that's true. So again, any vehicles that people own already right now are not going to pay that extra pollution surcharge. So everyone is going to pay, again, less than $5 you know, a month to, to store their vehicle on, on public property. And so I think, and again, people with lower income, again, and including those, including people, you know, who own who own these cars, um, are are only going to be paying five dollars a year, which I don't think is a, is a huge thing to pay. So, so I think again, there are misconceptions out there about all these people with big vehicles are going to pay more, but but again, it's only new vehicles, and it's only people who who can afford to buy new gas guzzlers. Again, mm-hmm. there are on the market lots of those bigger trucks um, that are hybrids, that are electric vehicles are coming out. So by the time it's time for them to buy a new vehicle, there are there are more environmentally friendly options that they'll be able to choose from. Right. Do you think enforcement here is also going to be an issue? Because people feel like if you're going to make me pay this, you better make sure you enforce it. If I've got resident-only parking that I have to pay for, I want to make sure that if people are parking here they're and they're not supposed to, they're going to have to pay for that. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think the city has estimated their, the initial implementation cost will be over, will be just over a million dollars, and then every year they'll be they've budgeted about a million dollars to pay for it. So I, you know, I don't know the ins and outs about enforcement because I'm not um, city staff, but of course that's an important part of making sure that people are actually paying what they should. So it could go either way today. Do you have any sense of how this is going to go? I, you know, you know what I hope. I hope that they vote to pass the entire thing. Um, and I think, I think what people are looking for, what a lot of the health community is looking for, is is leadership. Right? Let's not be short sighted. Let's not quibble over four dollars a month. Let's make sure that we can fund the real climate action that we need. And I really hope that, especially the more progressive city councillors and and the mayor, listen to this message and vote to pass it. We'll see what happens, Dr. Lem. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Simi. Dr. Melissa Lem is a Vancouver family physician, president-elect of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, and a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. And as you heard, very much in support of the Climate Emergency Parking Program proposal, which goes up for a vote at Vancouver City Council today. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Do you ever find yourself just kind of, you know, perusing things online and then all of a sudden you just make a spontaneous purchase because you saw something online that somebody else had and you thought, oh, that looks kind of cool. That person had it on Instagram. I should get that too. And then boom, you bought it just like that. This is actually a thing. People are going into debt because of it. Raji Sohal is back with us. Raji, I totally believe this. Oh, yeah, for sure, Simi. There's been a lot of articles lately uh, because of the criticism we've seen of Facebook in the last couple of weeks um, due to that investigative journalism piece out of Wall Street Journal. And uh, one such uh, article came out yesterday, and it's about how that chain of like and then comment and spend is so much easier on social media. And let's be real here. That is the purpose of Facebook, right? Facebook, which owns Instagram. The purpose of Instagram is that your preferences get tracked and traced, and then you get fed more ads and also just more like regular posts uh, from influencers and whatnot uh, who are selling products. And you're not always aware that they're selling products. You get sucked in, you find yourself uh, spending here and there. I don't know if you've fallen uh, to some of these uh, devices, but I have personally um, found that like, I don't want to buy clothes online that I will see online because I'm kind of old school and that if I can't examine it in person, I'm less likely to buy it. It's something like books. Okay, yes, I would purchase online. But social media has, you know, really amplified the fear of missing out or FOMO. And people aren't posting their bad days on social media, right? So you remember you remember that show, uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Oh, Robin Leach. I loved yes, this that was show. His name. Champagne Wishes and, and Caviar Dreams. Who didn't love yes, that show? Yes, exactly. Well, Instagram, I feel, is like that show, but it's for everyone. So it's like lifestyles of the happy and the good looking. And these influencers show you happy pictures. Uh, they're regular people, um, but they're wearing, you know, this kind of workout gear or using that kind of a juicer and you see it enough times and you you find yourself wanting it uh, without having like thought about it concretely and I find that if anything with everyone posting so much there's like this kind of aesthetic consensus right you know the Kardashians their look like they are so responsible for making that kind of look everyone's oh, yeah, fashion true. reference they single-handedly brought back that uh the trend of the the very big eyebrows for example and yes. other social media influencers started to to copy that and follow um, them. And then you find that suddenly a lot of people in the world are trying to follow that look. But then people, people are trying to buy that lipstick or that yes. outfit that they're wearing or whatever it is that they're selling because they feel like I see everybody else wearing this on Instagram, therefore I want it too. So people are going into debt for this. People are going into debt for it. And, and I think what people don't realize when they're using these apps is that you don't have to necessarily click on the link immediately for you to be affected by this fear of missing out. Like it might just be that you see the images enough times and then later on down the road, um, you are served some algorithms that, uh, you know, are showing that stuff available from this brand or that brand. And I, I have personally been affected by this with regards to travel. Before the pandemic, I was really looking forward to going to Italy. And I was like, hey, hang on. Where is this coming from? Oh, it's because I am seeing all of these um, people, influencers and whatnot, online in these apps, uh, you know, going to Italy. Right. There must but be yes, some warnings about this. There there have been. just the We've always been warned of keeping up with the Joneses. And um, there has to be a way to manage financial FOMO 
And according to um, licensed insolvency trustee, Jillian Goldblatt, you really, you got to watch it. You got to break down your spending there, your FOMO spending. People talk a lot about budgeting, but I think it's budgeting in what makes sense for some of these young adults in that um, there are a lot of great apps out there today that you can plug, you can download, they connect to your bank account, they connect to your credit cards um, and can give you a real-time sense of how you're spending your money. Um, It takes no effort. It's really easy. You know, you can look at it at a glance, at a picture, um, and then it's taking that information and really utilizing it and saying, okay, how should I be budgeting what I'm earning? Um, There's a 50-20-30 rule that we talked about, meaning you should be spending 50% of your income on needs and 20% on wants and 30% on savings. And so just trying to, to fall into those buckets and, uh, you know, spend your money appropriately. Oh boy, that means probably better to just stay off of Instagram, Raji. But stay off it altogether, <laughs> unless Instagram wanted to do the responsible thing and add a calculator in That's there that would happen. help you uh, figure out that where you're responsible spending thing? Going. That's not going to yeah. happen. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. The Ministry of Education here in BC is getting together a committee. They're going to be meeting immediately, we heard, to discuss the issue of whether vaccines should be mandatory for all teachers and school staff across the province. But what about the younger children too, the ones that are not yet able to get a shot? That could soon be about to change. We know that Moderna has um, applied to have their shots available to younger children. Um, Pfizer and BioNTech did the same thing. So it's a matter of time before there is an approval for children aged 5 to 11 to get the vaccine. But how do we get that message out? And how different should that messaging be from the way we approached you know, vaccination issues with adults? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is reporter Carly Weeks with The Global Mail. She's a health reporter there, and she's written a piece in The Globe about some of these challenges. Carly, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is such a fascinating topic to me because do you think like health authorities have given enough thought to this idea in Canada? It seems like they have not. And I'd like to say that I'm surprised, but we've seen throughout the pandemic that um, when things even we know are kind of coming, it seems as though officials are still scrambling. You know, so we saw earlier this year, there was a big scramble and supply issues and all kinds of headaches with the rollout of the vaccine for adults. You would think that now, okay, we we understand that um, the company has requested Health Canada approve the vaccine, that regulators are going to be pouring over the data and that an approval could be coming soon. And yet, Um, everyone that I talk to around the country say that they're basically just now starting to get their ducks in a row. Um, Doesn't, you know, lead to a lot of inspiring confidence about how well this rollout is going to go, right? Yeah, exactly. What do you think some of the challenges here are going to be? I think there will be several. So first, the, the biggest challenge I think will simply be in determining what this is going to look like, because we need to keep in mind that a vaccination campaign for kids can't be the same as for adults. Um, you know, a lot of adults, you know, probably got their shot in the very beginning, you know, in, in maybe a large open space. Um, you know, we did a lot of that here in Ontario, and that certainly is an efficient way of getting things done quickly. But kids, you know, they're very sensitive to sights and sounds, so there's going to need to be a little bit more privacy. So are we going to be seeing more integration into doctor's offices and pharmacist's um, offices and that kind of thing? So I think from that will be one challenge, is just the nuts and bolts of where are we doing this? Um, how do we roll this out efficiently? And how do we answer parents' questions? Um, 
there's good data showing that parents tend to question the COVID vaccine more for their kids than they would say for themselves, right? And, you know, I think a lot of parents can relate to that feeling. They want to protect Mm -hmm. their kids. This is a new vaccine. So are we doing a good enough job as a country, as health authorities, answering some of those questions and, and putting that information out there proactively so that people understand, you know, they may have seen, you know, some scary headlines linking the vaccine to heart inflammation, but parents should also know those risks are actually very, very small. And the risks of your child getting COVID and a complication as a result are actually much higher. Like, are people hearing this? Well, that's what I wonder too, because all throughout the pandemic, we heard messaging that said, oh, COVID cases in children are generally mild. And they're not that serious. And so now you have to change that. And that's been a long time that people have been hearing that. Definitely. Yeah. And I think there has been a lot of frustration among some people on this side of the debate. You know, there's sort of, yeah, kids are fine. Schools are fine. And then there's people that are saying, you know, when you can, you can't compare COVID cases in kids to adults. So yes, kids, will generally be okay if they become infected and they will recover. But if you have even a very small number who become sick or hospitalized as a result, that is really devastating because you think about the fact that they are kids. That you can't really compare that they're at the beginning of their life. And even if the amount, you know, God forbid, we have seen a few kids die during the COVID um, crisis. And, you know, that is, is really devastating, devastating when anyone dies. But you think about the years lost of life for a child, right? And so, we do need to protect kids from COVID. We also need to protect, you know, their mental health, their stability. Every time we see cases spiral out of control, we risk closing schools and other activities. And so, you know, if we want this pandemic to end, we really need to get them vaccinated and do a good job of it. Get a lot of buy-in from the community. And I think that we haven't done a good enough job during this crisis of, of kind of helping bring people on board and understanding Um, just simple messages about vaccine safety. Another uh, great point that you brought up in your article, and I hadn't even thought about this, is is how to get all these kids vaccinated because the way we vaccinated adults, like the convention center or these mass vaccination clinics, you can't really do that with kids. It's kind of a scary thing for kids. Exactly. It's completely scary and overwhelming for them. Um, Not to mention, you know, waiting in line and and all these other things that, that kids simply most of those kids especially the young ones are not going to accept and so I think there's going to be um, a lot of careful planning and finessing going on I know that in BC they have talked about you know using pharmacies using family doctors kind of using the whole tool uh, like every location we have in the tool belt but you know are we really um, I guess prepared to be creative and quickly you know this is not something that we want a vaccine approved and then we start to have this plan Things really need to be done now. There are some people that are talking about school-based programs, um, but, you know, a lot of parents might have some concerns about that, sending their kid off to get a COVID vaccine without them being there to hold their hand. So I think a lot of um, difficult questions ahead, and hopefully we'll get some of those answers soon. Right, because there's obviously different groups of people, right, Carly? Like, there'll be some parents who will say probably right away that I want my child to get this. Others might need some convincing. Exactly. And that's what we did see, I think, even with the adult rollout, but it's going to be maybe to a larger extent with kids. You know, there are, again, those questions about um, about safety and questions that people want to have answered. Some people are saying, look, I don't feel that this is an, um, a threat to my child, so I'm going to sit back and wait a little bit. Um, but we know that at this point in the pandemic, you know, it's uh, with this Delta variant, it's not a matter of if you're going to get COVID, it's really a matter of when. And I think that we need to um, transmit the message that there is, there is some urgency here. Uh, And yes, most kids will recover. But again, there are so many other complications and risks as long as this pandemic is going on, right? So again, 
so much to take into consideration here. Do you think it's different for adults? Like we know now that, you know, so many people have been vaccinated and the concern about side effects. Well, it should be less given that you can see how many people are vaccinated. But is that different when it comes to kids then? Parents think, well, that's not the same as an adult. Yes, I, I think it's very different. And I think that the message a lot of parents are receiving, um, even just through social media channels, is that this is, um, you know, they're falsely hearing the narrative that this is um, untested and dangerous and all of these other things. And in fact, this vaccine, while it came to market quickly, is actually among the most well-tested, highly robust tests have been done. More people have been tested using these vaccines than any other vaccine before they came on the market when they were originally marketed. So I, I think that people are generally unaware of the safety protocols that are in place, um, especially at, you know with regulators like Health Canada, who are very careful in looking at this data. Um, you know, I think that most people are just, they're so busy, they don't have time to really think about that process. But there is a very good, rigorous process in place. Unfortunately, we're living in a time where information warfare is kind of at our, everyone's doorstep. You yeah. open up Facebook and it's just, so much misinformation. Right. But as you point out too, we have all this information. We know what we should be doing. But as you point out in your article, I don't think any province is actually gearing up for this right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's been a long frustration we've had, you know, before the pandemic even hit, there was, um, a lot of measles outbreaks, um, you know, across the country and, you know, things like it's sort of inconceivable a few decades ago that so many people would be rejecting, you know, the yeah. measles vaccine that we would see measles coming back. But, you know, in fact, we've kind of allowed this to happen. And I think a lot of health authorities and health officials across Canada just basically think, well, let's not talk about that anti-vaccination movement. And then because if we talk about it, it's, we're going to just amplify it. And in fact, what we've seen is that while we're not talking about it, they're talking to each other and they're spreading their message far and wide, which yeah. is, you know, putting that question, that seed of doubt. We keep hearing there's very few of us that are hardcore anti-vaxxers out there. That might be true, but they're very good at planting seeds of doubt that's just enough for people to hesitate. And we've seen throughout this pandemic in Canada, people that have hesitated and waited have ended up in the ICU and very sick as a result. And of course, we never want to see that happen. No, we do not. Carly, thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. Carly Weeks is a Globe and Mail health reporter. Check out the piece that she's written on this issue that we're gearing up to vaccinate children in this country against COVID-19. But the plan, I mean, it has to be a completely different way than the way we approach vaccinating adults. But is any province actually working on those plans?